Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, pastor of mission and worship here at LMPC. And this episode is a Pillar and Ground questions episode, where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. And this week, we are continuing a conversation that we began on how to share the gospel in a changing world. And I mentioned that we are leaning on a book that Chad and I uh, used for a Wednesday night elective this past fall, Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatrow. Last time we talked about why should we evangelize at all, and we looked at a couple of passages of Scripture and agreed that uh, evangelism, sharing the gospel, is a biblical command. We know we're supposed to go and make disciples, share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors. But the question that that always raises is, okay, but how? How do you actually do that? The assumption behind that question is that some of the ground seems to have shifted beneath us. Evangelism used to be something that we knew how to do pretty well, we thought. We could go and knock on our neighbor's door and trust that there would be someone who had common assumptions, perhaps that there is a God and an afterlife, that there's something wrong with the world, that we need a solution to it. Now, our neighbors might have completely disagreed with us on the specifics. They might think the answer to what's wrong with the world is that we all just need to try harder and be good people, and if we do more good things than bad things, we get to go to the good place when we die. But at least all of those categories were assumed. That seems to no longer be the case, especially with younger generations. It's completely possible that your younger neighbor or coworker believes that there is no higher power, that nothing happens when we die, and that right or wrong is just whatever we decide it is. Joshua Chatrow, in his book, uh, Telling a Better Story, argues that what's happened is that we are living out of different frameworks, different meta-narratives, different stories. We are living a different story than our neighbor is. And in some ways, our story is confusing to them. It no longer overlaps as much with their story as perhaps it did in previous generations. So we spent the rest of our time together last time talking about how we got to the place where we could be living out of such different frameworks. And we talked through the historical shifts from the pre-modern era to the modern era to the late modern or what we might now call the post-modern era, which is where we are today. And we finished by talking about how in this post-modern world, we are living in what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, calls uh, the imminent frame, a one-level world. Uh, a world that is not, uh, we, we would say, not divine, defined by the spiritual, that the physical, what we can observe in a, perhaps in a science lab, is all there is. But we also talked about how, for many people in our culture, there are cracks in this frame, that they're, they're beginning to think that there might be something beyond the walls of this story that we've built for ourselves. People recognize that this can't be all there is. They're looking for more. They're looking for a better story. And as Christians, we know that they're actually looking for our story. But the question still is, how do we start to introduce them to it? How do you begin to share the gospel with someone whose basic assumptions about the biggest questions are so much different than your own? And so that's what we're going to spend some time talking about this episode. This is where Dr. Chatrow introduces his concept of inside-out evangelism. In order to tell our neighbors a better story, we have to go inside of their story. We have to understand it, understand the one they're currently living out of. Once we have done that, once we've gotten inside of it and mapped it out, we can then begin to show them what he calls the plot holes in their stories. And from there, begin to work out and introduce them 
to the Christian story. He actually begins by noting, uh, using a Salman Rushdie quote, a a secular author uh, and novelist who uh, talks about the impulse towards religion, this sense that everyone has that there must be something going on beyond what we can uh, sense here. Rushdie writes, it is important that we understand how profoundly we all felt the needs that religion down the ages has satisfied. Firstly, the need to be given an articulation of our half-glimpsed knowledge of exaltation, of awe, and of wonder. Life is an awesome experience, and religion helps us understand why life so often makes us feel small, by telling us what we are smaller than. And contrary-wise, because we also have a sense of being special, of being chosen, religion helps us by telling us what we have been chosen by and what for. Secondly, he says, we need answers to the unanswerable. How did we get here? How did here get here in the first place? And thirdly, we need codes to live by, rules for everything. The idea of God is at once a repository for our awestruck wonderment at life and an answer to the great questions of existence and a rule book too. The soul needs all these explanations, not simply rational explanations, but explanations of the heart. It is also important to understand how often the language of secular, rationalist materialism has failed to answer these needs. End quote. So Rushdie gives three areas where he sees religion's ability to satisfy certain universal human needs better than secularism. And this is uh, what Chatra was talking about when he talks about plot holes in the stories that our neighbors are living out of. Uh, Rushdie identifies those three areas, as we just read from the quote, as a sense of awe and wonder. Every human being has this feeling that they matter, even though we are small parts of a vast universe. If secular rationalist materialism is true, how could that be the case? We are just small specks living on one small speck uh, in a very short amount of time in this universe's existence. How could we matter at all? And yet we sense that we do. How do we explain that? So there's a sense of awe and wonder that religion answers. Secondly, there's the questions of origins, life after death, human significance in light of it. How do we answer those questions? And he says secular rationalist materialism doesn't have great answers to that. Third, he says that religion gives answers to questions about morality. We all have a sense that there need to be rules. How do we explain that? Everyone's got a sense that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Where has that come from and what do we ground it in? Chatrow calls these plot holes in the secular stories. They're places where those narratives cannot give satisfying answers. But, and this is the important part, Christianity can. Christianity can answer those questions. Why do you have a sense of awe and wonder? Why do you feel like you matter? Well, because the Bible tells us you were created in the image of God. You do matter. You have intense value and significance. Where did we come from? Well, God made us, right? The, the old children's catechism answer, who made you? God made you. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Those are the questions of origins and its significance. And how should we live? What about issues of morality? What's right and what's wrong? What standard do we have? Well, we have in the scriptures, God's standard for life. And so we have answers to the questions that people are asking. And so as we begin to think about our neighbor's 
uh, stories, it's important to recognize these things as we think about our own perhaps lack of confidence or anxiety in approaching uh, our neighbors to share the gospel. It's important to remember that we believe that their story is actually not, they're actually not satisfied with their own story, uh, that they can't be because it can't answer uh, those questions in the way that our story can. But that does raise the question, what are some of the stories that our neighbors are living out of? If we're going to use this framework of inside out, what are the stories that we're trying to get out and get inside of and then back out of to explain Christianity uh, to our friends and neighbors and coworkers? Chatrow has a few different categories. He begins, first of all, with what we might call the pessimistic secular story. According to this story, the universe came into existence through a big bang billions of years ago with no divine cause or purpose for future inhabitants. So in this story, while humans once embraced fanciful projections of God and had illusions of life after death, the use of reason and scientific discovery has awakened us to the harsh reality of a universe of natural causes and physical matter. So perhaps you've known some folks uh, like this uh, in your life. When I worked in RUF in campus ministry, often when I encountered atheists, this tended to be the brand uh, of atheists that I ran into who believed that um, we need to get on with recognizing that there is no point uh, to any of this and make peace with it. But the problem with this story is that a truly unflinching commitment to follow this story to its end leads the pessimistic secular person to conclude that human life has no ultimate significance, that there is no cosmic order, no ethical order outside of our subjective preferences, that there are no universal moral obligation. Reason here leads to a grim reality, right? That humanity is going to go extinct. The solar system itself will as well. Everything's eventually going to run out of energy. No one will be alive to even remember human history. Ultimately, it won't matter that we ever existed. And of course, you can imagine all sorts of problems with that story. No one wants to live like that. In fact, no one can live like that. No one can live as if their life doesn't matter or the life of their neighbors and loved ones doesn't matter. But there is uh, some truth that that is a, a story that some of our uh, friends and neighbors and coworkers are living out of. Another one is what he calls the optimistic secular story. Much like the pessimistic one, this story begins with the beginning of the universe emerging out of natural causes. For most of human history, this story would say our ancestors explained the world by appealing to a divine order, but through reason and science, enlightened humans began to cast off those myths. Now, the difference, perhaps, between this optimistic story and the pessimistic one is they attribute some value to religion. They thought of it as indispensable or reasonable as such beliefs might have once seemed to be, perhaps even necessary as an evolutionary tool for survival. Humans have progressed to the point that we just don't need it anymore. We don't need the crutch of religion anymore. This story, unlike the pessimistic one, is one of liberation. Having escaped outdated mythological conceptions of the world that were accompanied by stifling authoritarian dogma, we can now individually and collectively make our own meaning, set our own course. We're not just actors in the story, but authors with the freedom to write the story for ourselves and pursue meaning and happiness on our own terms. A third story he calls the pluralistic and moral therapeutic spirituality story. And this one frequently actually operates under the guise of Christianity, but its story is distinct from Christianity and the previous two secular ones. Uh, this story would believe that there actually is a God or some sort of divine source that's seen as essential. And this God gives life meaning, morality, and significance. However, neither God 
morality nor our purpose is found by looking outside of ourselves to some external divinely given order or traditional religious authority, uh, such as we might encounter in the Bible or written revelation or a religious institution like the church. Ultimately, we're to look inside of ourselves to listen to the unique human or divine spark within us and live authentic lives. So those are three of the big ones that you might see. Of course, there are other stories uh, that our neighbors are living out of, and some of them are not big overarching stories like those. They're, they're smaller stories. Chatra lists a few what he calls micro stories that many of our neighbors are living out of. Uh, consumerism. The good life comes with a price tag, so we need to earn as much money as we can, work as hard as you can, because the good life can be bought, and you're going to need money to do it. Another one would be achievement. You are what you accomplish. So that one could be in the form of money, but it could be in the form of the praise of others, uh, work accomplishments and the like. Other stories people are living out of is, is one of romance, our loneliness, our insatiable desire to love and be loved can be satisfied if we just find the right person, if we just find our soul mate. And so Chatra writes, it's important to be aware of different macro and micro stories. Yet given the piecemeal way that many people blend narratives together today and the unconscious nature by which our stories script our life, it would be a mistake to assume that people are always fully aware of the storylines they're enacting. Our life scripts are more like the air we breathe than the items we select off a menu. And that actually is a really important point that he makes there. When we talk about our neighbors living out of a certain story, it's not as if our neighbors often realize they're living out of a story or that they've gone to some kind of philosophical buffet line and picked out the one that made the most sense to them. Many of these things are unconscious. It's as unconscious as breathing air. And a challenge for us as Christians, actually, is that we can be taken captive by these stories as well. Uh, living in our culture, it's easy to become influenced by the stories of consumerism or achievement or romance or even some of the bigger stories that we talked about. How do we as Christians counter that? We need to be constantly reimmersing ourselves in the Christian story. And so this is why it's so important for us to do things like come to weekly worship, uh, to hear the story of the gospel preached to us again and again, to study the scriptures on our own so that we might be reimmersed in this story so that once we've worked our way inside our neighbor's story, we can then lead them out to back to our story, the Christian story. Uh, The story that believes not that the universe is a product of random chance, but that a triune God created it as an outpouring of his love, that he created us and we're made in his image. And so we have value and significance that we fell into sin. And so that explains why there's something wrong with the world that needs to be fixed. The good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, his, his life and death and resurrection as the solution to everything that is wrong in our world. And the good news that God is now renewing the world through his people whom he has given his Holy Spirit. And that we now look forward to the day when everything's going to ultimately be made right, when evil will be banished and God will dwell among his people in a new creation. That's our story, the story that we're trying to help our neighbors enter into. So we have to, as we seek to uh, engage our neighbors with the gospel, we have to enter into their story and engage it from within. Chatrao writes, we must then engage their story to tug at their assumptions and invite them to consider the Christian story. By beginning within their story, by listening for hints of the larger and smaller narratives that inform their life, paying attention to what they look to in order to fulfill the inescapable features of personhood, we are positioned to identify commonalities 
and listen so we can discuss points of disagreement and challenge their view on its own terms and show how the prevailing cultural narratives fail to live up to their deepest aspirations. This is actually slightly different than we often think about when we think about apologetics or defending uh, the faith. Uh, We often think of apologetics within a a building block model. And in this model, you establish a basic logic, you move to general theism, right? There must be a God. Uh, You present historical evidence for the Bible's reliability and the resurrection of Jesus, and then you present the gospel. And that model makes sense, and in many contexts, it actually can work. It's not a bad model in many ways, and so I I don't want to sound as if I'm completely knocking it. But based on what we've been talking about so far, it does run into some problems. Uh, Our neighbors may not agree to our logical conclusions. And of course, it's not necessarily a very engaging dinner conversation. Uh, Those types of conversations are better suited for a debate society or a courtroom. And so in the inside-out model that Chatrow argues for in the book, you are able to have conversations with your neighbor where you weave the gospel in through conversation, making it the thematic center of how you engage. As you join the unbeliever in their story and ask questions about what they believe and why they believe it and where that came from, uh, you're looking for places where their story overlaps with the gospel, overlaps with the Christian story. The overlapping area represents common assumptions and connection points, things where you can affirm uh, what it is that they believe, what it is that they long for. And then there are areas that do not overlap, uh, areas where you can point out the, the differences, points at which the gospel can challenge their worldview, but also invite them into something better. First, starting on the inside of the other person's social imagination, we ask ourselves as we listen to others, what can we affirm and what do we need to challenge? Where does the story or stories they've embraced lead? And how is their view of the world unlivable and inconsistent? And we actually see this, you may be wondering as we're talking about this, but okay, is this a biblical form of evangelism? And I, I think the answer to that is yes. We actually see this in Acts chapter 17. So if you've, if you've got a Bible or you're in a place where you can open it, let me just invite you to turn there for a second because I want us to see that I think the Apostle Paul is actually doing something similar as he speaks to the Jewish people in Thessalonica. As he's there in verses 1 through 4 of, of chapter 17, now when they had passed through... Uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women." And then skipping down to verse 16, as Paul goes into Athens, Paul, this is a somewhat famous um, passage in Acts where Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive you're very religious. So when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians in verses one through four, he starts in the Hebrew scriptures. He starts what he can affirm about the story that they've believed. He says, yes, that's true. And he explains how the Torah was not an end in itself. And that, of course, is the no. As he, inha- as he got into their story, he affirmed something, and then, of course, he had something that he had to reject. He showed how Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of the story of Israel. He does the same thing in verses 16 through 34 in Athens. Paul didn't share the background story with his listeners as he did with the Jews that he was talking to earlier in the chapter. So he enters into their social imaginations, and he leverages their cultural stories 
He affirms the Athenian desire to worship the divine, their intuition that they're missing something. They have this altar to the unknown God. And so then Paul subverts the dominant story that they have and explains what they got wrong and invites them in to a better story. So you can think about this with your neighbors. There's always going to be something in the story that they're believing generally that we can affirm. Many of our neighbors care passionately about the fight for human rights, the goodness of human diversity, the importance of serving the oppressed and the marginalized. Those are all good things. In fact, they're things that we see out of the scriptures. Uh, But of course, there's going to be some things that we need to challenge. This cultural sense of moral autonomy. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. This cultural denial of divine accountability. And of course, expressive individualism that I define myself. I am who I say I am. We have to be asking the question, where do their stories lead and are they internally consistent and livable? So that's working inside our neighbor's stories. What about actually going from the inside of their stories, bringing them outside to the Christian story? Working outside their view to Christianity, we contrast the stories that they've embraced with the gospel, asking where their stories actually borrow from the Christian story. Uh, This is actually one of the really fascinating things about the the moment that we're living in culturally is many of our neighbors are more, and I'm going to say this and then qualify it, many of our neighbors are more Christian than they realize. They are actually taking from our playbook as they put their life together. They care about uh, rights and the marginalized and the poor. Many of them believe that, but those are actually Christian beliefs based upon our view of the world, that God created it and created everyone in his image. If they don't believe that, we have to raise the question, well, well, why would you believe that there is such a thing as inalienable moral rights? Chachau writes uh, in the book, though your secular friends may oppose Christianity, in many ways it is still pumping through their veins and directly linked to what they see as a healthy society. Your task is to help them see that they are likely already personally borrowing from the Christian narrative and to wonder with them what might happen if Christianity, with its assumptions and ethics, were to be completely purged from our culture. Many key features assumed in the Western moral, social, and judicial spheres originated in or have been profoundly impacted by Christianity. By learning to identify these features, you can explain how they seem to be smuggling resources from the Christian story in order to secure many of their most significant values and aspirations. This is what we mean by working inside out. We can begin to show them how many parts of their story actually are inconsistent with the story they're telling themselves. They're actually more consistent with the Christian story, that it is actually a better fulfillment of the aspirations and the worldview that they want to live out of. He writes, by working with an unbeliever and lovingly challenging them to see the ways they must borrow beliefs, norms, and practices from Christianity, ones that fit with some of their deepest desires, but not their secular narrative, you have an opening to offer an invitation. Why not try on this story and see how it fits in other ways as well? So part of the challenge that we have before us is Again, being in close enough relationship with our friends and neighbors and coworkers to begin to know their story. Uh, that involves lots of time and asking lots of questions. But as we get to know it, then showing them the places where our story may be a better fit, in fact, is a better fit for them, that all the longings of their heart, all their desires are actually found only in God, that where they are going cannot satisfy them. 
And so this is, again, another opportunity where we have to tell our neighbors the better story that we believe uh, and to share it with them. And so I hope you'll be encouraged to do that, not to be uh, scared of engaging with our neighbors and the stories that they have. I know it's intimidating, but we have a better story for them. And so as we engage them, let me encourage you to ask those questions, uh, to begin to map out and, and know their story so that you can help them understand our own, the best news that we've ever known. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Thank you.